This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Karen. Yes, yes. Okay. Ready, ready. Good everything, y'all. You know, we be chatting before and then time gets uh so uh we were having an off mic conversation. Oh, and welcome, welcome to In Class with Car, episode 195. Uh, wherever you are in the world, hello, howdy, uh, good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Uh, I feel like Luther Vandross when he was like uh bye-bye. Uh so yes, hi Dr. Carr. <laughs> good morning, good evening. I love so, I love you know black women's hair is so beautiful. I love your hair. Every time you flip it up, I love that look, by the way. I, I just washed it. it. It's just that's water. Right. It's just water. It's bad well, water. That's the perfect <laughs> thing. That's the perfect, that's the perfect combination. Oh my goodness. Yes, yes. Thank you. I I, I did a sauna. I, I just finally, you know, got my sauna game back. You know, I was like, I gotta gotta get these toxins out. And I was like, oh, I gotta wash my hair. So that's what we no did. Plan. So uh, good morning to you. Um, we were we were having an off mic conversation. Actually, what's ironic about it? Someone called the radio. Uh, yo, for those who don't know, I do a, a radio show on Sirius XM Monday through Friday. Everybody better know at this point because you got elders showing up like snipers in my class. But you're gonna talk about oh. in a minute. She can tell you. Oh, okay. Over. Go okay. ahead, go ahead. Come on, elders with the, the snipes. Come um, on, come so, on. So those of you who watch on YouTube, those are just clips. Uh, get your life, get your whole life. There's actually a link uh, on my YouTube page where you can get three months for free. So you can get involved with it because it's, yeah, it's an experience. It's like, yeah. it's like opening a book and just taking out the middle and thinking you understand the story. You can't understand this unless you're in it. But I say all that to say yesterday we had Foolishness Friday and a brother called you know, in not foolish mode, because sometimes, you know, it'll creep in because there's serious things going on. And he said, yeah. what do you think about the, the firing of Mehdi Hassan? And I, I didn't I didn't give him a good answer, Dr. Carr, because I was like, well, ratings, blah, blah, blah. But you came in today with a whole, which, which is why we have to bang up against other people. We can't be definitive about the things we know unless we've examined it against scholars and people that have read and seen things. So you came in talking about Keith Oberman this morning. And I, I had not seen him. I had not seen it. I had not seen it. So uh enlighten us. What happened? Well, it just it just dropped maybe yesterday. I don't, you know, Oberman, and you know much better than, than I ever will his range and scope, but you know, oh. you remember well before so, so, I remember when he was on, on ESPN. I remember well, that's, that's what I go. That's what I remember him from. I remember him from that. And and like a lot of uh shall we say white dudes. Um, you know, those with some intelligence and some ability to navigate who say anything that even closely resembles speaking truth to power, get an outsized reputation as truth tellers. And so even though he was in the sports realm, I preferred him, I think probably like a lot of other people to somebody like Chris Berman or somebody like that. And so he was, he was interested. And then of course he went into MSNBC and that's, that's why I said, you, you, you know, more than I do, because in addition to that sports realm, of course, you, you're a journalist. And so I know that, that you operated in that realm too. I was so, uh, a paid contributor for three years on uh, MSNBC. That's why. That's why. That's why I mentioned it because, of course, he got, I guess, summarily distanced and dismissed from MSNBC. Was it for being too radical? I mean, as now, I see, did. As I know I you did. know about this. Come on now. Wait a minute. Go ahead now. All right. Say more. Say more. Well, no, 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 no. But, but um, I don't pretend to keep up with it. I know that. Uh, well, maybe a couple of days ago, today is, of course, Saturday, so maybe like Thursday or Thursday night or Friday yesterday, he um, 
released his regular podcast. I guess he does a weekly podcast. That's why I asked Eddie. And I, I, I see him on the Twitters because uh, yeah. he, he, you know, and he's a dog lover. And, you know, like everyone, not everyone is, you know, he's complicated sometimes. But yeah, so he's on YouTube. So y'all can find him. I'm actually, I'm finding this now. Uh, I okay. got it. Okay. I'll drop it in the chat. Yes. Oh, yeah, please, please. Yeah. Because he, um, he was roasting among others, uh, his one-time protege, Rachel Maddow, for being completely silent about Mehdi Hassan and, and this, uh, you know, Hassan is spinning it as, you know, I'm, I'm grateful and I'm glad I'll still be a weekend anchor and fill in host, but they took his show off the air, of course. And this, of course, after uh, what's your, your your friend and brother's name? Our brother's name from uh, Canada by way of um, Africa and the Middle East. Well, I'm thinking, I see his face, um, Ali. Yeah, Ali Velshi. Ali Velshi. Yes, Ali Velshi. And so he was talking about how, oh, this is curious timing that they would be silenced and marginalized, and Mehdi Hassan is the best thing on MSNBC by far. Then he, then, then uh, Lawrence O'Donnell ca caught a stray, and uh, Chris Hayes caught a stray, and uh, but but he was really uh, that is Overman focusing on Rachel Maddow. And he said, you know, you know, I put you on. I put Chris Hayes on. I put this little guy from uh, Jersey. What's his name? Oh, I forget. Oh, yeah, Steve Karnacki. And he started he started pulling out receipts. Lawrence O'Donnell pulled him out of it. And he's roasting them. And he said, do you remember that meeting? He's talking about Rachel O'Donnell, uh, Rachel uh, Maddow. He said, remember that meeting where we came in and they were threatening to change something you said or your, your script? And you said, if they change a line in my script, I'm quitting. And then after the meeting, we met up and you and me talked. We said, I can quit at eight. You can quit at nine later for this. And then you reminded me of when you were sleeping in your uh, uh, in your what they call those things, efficiencies in New York and didn't have anything to eat. And, and you were living off X number of dollars a week. And then you said, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that, you know, if I get this money, I might change. I won't know how to do because I'm the one that pitched for you to get a show. And you were the one that was like, I don't know if I should have a show because if I get successful, I don't know what will happen. He said, you didn't say anything when Tiffany Cross got put off the air and you're not saying anything now. They paying you $31 million a year to do one show a week and you can't say anything. He is roasting Rachel Matt. And so you, of course, in your genius, just when we came on the air, said, you know, sometimes you have to speak up. Sometimes we can't just. And so it's perfect. Here we are the day after Rosa Parks in 1955 said, nah, the power of nah. What, Professor Hunter, what, 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 when, when you hear that, what does that bring to your mind in terms of? Refusal, you know. Oh, can't hear you. You you muted. You muted. I muted myself so I could pull up the YouTube and drop. Oh, it good, in. good, 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 good. Yes. Um, a couple of things. First of all, as as we assess where we are right now in the world, uh, not has to be in everybody's spirit, right? And it has to be a collective not, right? So, and it can't just be a black people not. You know right. what Keith Overman is demonstrating, even though he may not be, you know, he's not a civil rights activist, and we don't depend on him to do that. But when no. something is wrong. And you sit in that wrong, you don't say anything. You are complicit. They say silence is acquiescence. You are part of the problem, right? And if we don't say something when we're in, even in corporate America, and I know people got bills and you got things, but those of us who can sacrifice, Keith Overman can sacrifice. And even I can sacrifice, so I do, right? And, yep. and it's a very similar uh, thing. You know, we can say some of the things that some people can't, but we got to also know that you got our back. And Rachel Maddow can say some things. 31 minutes. Come on, lady. If you ain't put your money away 
over the last, and I don't even make that kind of dough at all. But you know, you have to build layers so that you can have your own personal freedom, but also freedom for 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 things that are wrong, right? And this right. is that. Nah, wasn't about Rosa Parks. She clearly could have gotten gotten a ride to wherever she wanted to go. The lady That's wasn't right. she wasn't destitute at that time, and her she and her husband they were working. This was a nod for all of us. That's and right. there has to be that spirit. And even if you aren't the one to say it or step up, you at least got to have people's back. And That's I feel right. like it's universal. It's not black or white. It's right and wrong. I've been saying this for, it's not even left and right politics. It's right and wrong. And I feel like we've lost our way. That's Many right. of us don't even know what's wrong or right anymore because you see so many wrong people succeeding that you think, well, you know, well, they, they got away with it. As we watched uh, George Santos's um, sachet away last, yesterday, uh, <laughs> out of there, you know, uh, the hell with them. Okay, by the way, if you had had a vote in the in the federal legislature yesterday, would you would you would you care to divulge whether when you would have voted to expel expel him or not or why? Uh, first of all, I wouldn't have voted present. Uh, and yeah, you know, there's people. Well, well, now that gives them the license to do it to to the Democrats. They're gonna do it anyway. If it's wrong, it's wrong. This man got into, and, and it's not the will of the people that was thwarted because he lied. He lied. Do it anyway. True. I, I hear true. something. Hello, hello. Okay. So he, he lied about he lied about his background. He lied about everything, and he stole don well allegedly took donations for Botox and Hermes and uh, OnlyFans. <laughs> This is not what the people in Nassau voted for or, or in his district in New York. They didn't vote for that. They didn't vote. For, it's not like you're, you're removing someone that the will of the people said, this is who we want to represent us. He misrepresented himself. So it's a no brainer to me. Yes, it would be a, a yeah, get the hell out. Get the hell out because your, your presence in Congress diminishes the role of my presence in Congress, right? You tell me, you're telling the world that Congress, this is the level and, and he represents it. Which is why we got to stare in the face of all of those Republicans that said, yeah, this man, is this is unfair. He should get his day in court. This is not about a day in court. This is about representation and what the people, we the people deserve to have representing us. This is some BS. Yes, I definitely would have said ta-ta. Yes. Is, that is an eloquently put, spoken like a stateswoman. I think that's the higher ideal. And as you, as you lay that out, I think about the way that Fred Gray filing that case for Claudette Colvin and those other four sisters yes. in 1955 that ended up 56 that ended up at the Supreme Court Ryder versus Gale, which destroyed the segregated system in Alabama and ultimately the, the country in terms of public transportation. Think about the fact that they were relying on the 14th Amendment and the United States Constitution. You're absolutely right. There's a higher standard. Now, now these enslavers never meant for it to apply to us, but that might be the only way that you can even say that there's a path. Because you're absolutely right, because, you know, not not to sound cynical in the social structure we live in, but we know that Congress is a political body and that they don't follow any rules that don't accrue to their benefit. That's right. And so voting present, I mean, I was I was I was not bemused. I absolutely understood why, uh, in my mind, an absurd congressional resolution that equates Zionism, anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, which is of course just factually incorrect, but it was voted on and unanimously approved by the US House of Representatives, including all of the people that we would assume would not vote for it, um, including people like Ayanna Presley and uh, Alessandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib voted present. But I understand that politically because they are trying to crucify her. 
And so the best she could do, she couldn't vote against it because uh, unlike, for example, Barbara Lee with the Iraq war, who was the lone vote against it, you know, you just couldn't because they are, they are, I mean, we saw how Hill Harper turned down $20 million from a lot of his to run against. Her. I mean, so she's got, but, but, but that is an absurd resolution. So I understood that present vote, but in this one, Byron Donalds, who of course our sister and friend, Ajwa Bachwe Asmoa, I saw her on Juneteenth Eve roast Byron Donalds just because we was walking past him in the street. And that poor man, I don't, I don't know if he's still recovered from that. He got third degree burns from the roasting Ajwa gave him in the street, just casually. I'm like, damn, Ajwa, leave the man alone. He said, it's after, it's after work hours. She said, I don't care. You're an embarrassment. You're an embarrassment. Oh, I was like, oh, right. anyway. But, I, but, but. <laughs> I was going to say, said, most, before, most of us, and I, before I forget, because I forget for mine. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us do what's right, not because it's right, but because there's consequences for doing wrong. That's right. right. That's well, there right. used to be, right? So it's like, even as a kid, you like, oh, I'm going to get in punishment. Not that you are, don't want to do the wrong thing, but you know there's a consequence for doing the wrong thing. <laughs> there seems to be zero consequences right now. So Ajwa roasting him, there should be a consequence for your bad behavior, oh, no, for, your, for your misrepresentation, for, for your diminishing of our dignity. Because that's you're representing us, right? So I agree. No, so I agree. It, 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 it's consistent because she, like you, like all of us in our best moments, say there's a moral standard. And for us as people of African descent, it's a moral standard that when we look at our ways of knowing, we cert- that certainly permeated the various diverse cultures of Africa that were stuffed into those ships. But it was one that was baked hard into our identities as a result of the oppressions that we suffered and the traumas we suffered. We did, Cedric Robinson writes about that. He says, you know, inside black communities, in, in black movements in America, his book, Black Movements in America, he says, black folk held themselves to a higher moral standard. And now that has, probably unintended consequences because what it did was also bake in assumptions about white people, people who became white to use James Baldwin's language, because when uh, the subject of enslavement and capture was brought up to the last generation of formerly enslaved Africans in the 1930s in those WPA interviews that we have talked about. And of course we played the voice of Ophelia Egypt settle interviewing, talking about interviewing those, those women and men when they were asked about how they were told that their ancestors were captured, they said they were tricked, they were brought onto the boat. And then some of these white interviewers were like, what do you think about white people? And some of the black folks said, uh, well, we don't have any expectations. That's what white people do. I mean, so whiteness gets baked into, we don't hold y'all to the same higher moral standard that we hold ourselves. Black people are harder on ourselves than, because there's a higher moral standard. We know this is garbage, but you know better. I don't care. And I'm just thinking about that in the way Ajua approached Byron Donalds, who yesterday did not vote to expel because he says you have the day in court. And what you just laid out, which is politics be damned, right and wrong is very clear in this instance, and drum them out. Now, for me, I don't, until this moment, and you, and again, that's why we that's why we rub up against each other. That's why we commingle. That's why we think about these things collectively. We can't do it individually. You know, I just kept coming back to Adam Powell. And how they put Adam Clayton Powell out. They didn't expel him because there are strict rules. Once you have satisfied the requirements to be in the House of Representatives, the age requirement, the residency requirement, then they're not supposed to be able to expel you on other things. They can censor you. They can distance you. They can, you know, take away your chairpersonships. And that's what they did to Powell. But ultimately, Powell comes back into the body. He's reelected. But expulsion is the death penalty. And pragmatically, I'm thinking, okay, they got rid of Santos. That's very convenient, even though it's going to make it more, even more difficult for this uh, Christian soldier, Mike Johnson, in the short term. 
But ultimately, if you can get the numbers, then there goes Rashid, there goes Tlaib, there goes, but you're right. They're going to do it anyway. And what you gave us, grounded in our ways of knowing, is a reminder that the political calculus shouldn't be the thing that determines your action in a moment like that. And what Keith Oberman said, for example, even pragmatically, he said they pay you $31 million a year, but the reason you're still there is because they did the calculation and understood that the brand of MSNBC with Matto is probably $300 million a year. So it's actually cheaper to let you go on the air and say whatever the hell you want than it would be to let you walk and go to Sirius or go anywhere else like you were threatening to go. And so it was fascinating because she's in a position where she can say nah at no, no effect to her. But you... And I, regardless of however else we may move through the world, there's a price to be paid, which just it just makes what they did in Montgomery in 1955 that come much on, more. Come on, and, <laughs> I, and, and I need to say this publicly: um, the 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 global majority drop that ended yesterday. Uh, I just want to say thank you, all of the people that have signed up for for narrative. I just want to say thank you because you yeah. allow us. You know, uh, all the people counting coin, count away, count away, but then see see the work, right? You allow us to have the freedom to be able to, Dr. Carr, not worry about whether Howard's going to do something to him because he's good. He's good because you made that possible or worry about what's going to happen because as, as part of my master plan was to make sure I duplicated myself. So if you tune into Urban View, there's there's Laurie, there's Clay, there's Heather, there's uh, on the Sunday, Omi, uh, Kasim Rashid, Muslim. We, we got Sher Michael conservative, greasy, you know, like there's, there's iterations. They, and they are doing it. They are doing it. Let me yeah, tell but, you, everybody but, it, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, Dr. Robbins there. And, and of yeah. course, Dr. Montessori's kicks off Sunday lineup. And it, for me, it was always about like, you can't be a singular target. You know, I know I'm going to say some things. I know me. I know me. I can't keep quiet for very long. I can, I can pretend. I can pretend for a minute. But at no, some point, no. if it's wrong, I can't sit in it. I just can't. So I have to build in these protections, right? These layers of people who will keep telling the truth, hopefully. You know, before that, there were other people there that, you know, got, got caught up with the stardust. And that's fine, because that's going to happen, too. I calculate that, right? There's always going to be somebody that will forsake the assembly for the for the dangling, you know, participles or whatever people <laughs> put in their faces, you know, here's some money and fame, it's a TV show. Okay, I'll take that. F y'all. You know, that happens. It happens. Uh, but you know, ironically, it, it didn't happen much. Happened twice. Happened twice in this nine-year journey. And mm -hmm. uh go with God, you know, because I understand that's the nature of people. That's how we've been conditioned. But yeah. the rest of them ten toes down, ready to like let's go. And it's a very, it's a real difference. You know what, Prof, I hadn't thought about that to this very second, as you were talking about the people, as you say, you duplicating yourself all the way back to the ancient Egyptian phrase, medu yahu, to train one's replacement. It doesn't do, it, that's, we don't call education from the Latin educare to draw out. We know we have talents that we can draw out. But for the Egyptians and for African people, the goal is to replicate yourself. The goal is to extend in the next generation. I was at the uh, Martin Luther King Library on Thursday. And I was down there and I saw a, they had a, uh, a series of conversations playing on a loop in the, uh, the first floor uh, reading room, a big, big screen TV they have uh, near the wall. And there was a conversation being had between Abby Phillip and Laura Coates. And I thought to myself, Laura Coates is not sitting there. 
had it not been for you saying, you know, I'm trying to replicate myself. I'm going to bring these other people on. And so I just thought to myself, wow, in this conversation, one of those sisters right there is there because another sister said it doesn't do any good for me to make a way for myself without making a way for everybody else. And it was very powerful. It just made me think about that as you were enumerating everybody. And I know, you know, I listen now um, and, 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 and am a serious subscriber. And so everybody you named is just spitting straight fire and doing that work. And, and the re, I mean, the work you're doing, sis, I'm just like, yeah, those toes, all 10 of them are down. Matter of fact, there may be an 11th toe, a vestigial toe somewhere down on the ground. <laughs> so, you know, like, what in the world is going on? She definitely got 12 toes. Yeah, 12 toes down, right? It's like, even if it's metaphorical, there's 12 toes. But, you know, the, the impact. Oh, oh, let me also, Eljoy Williams, I can't, I can't, I cannot, uh, I cannot, because she, you know, she actually brought sideways Lurie in. Like, I didn't even know there's like. Really? He's woven because yeah, Lorie was on Sunday Civics, and I was I didn't know you know I was just looking for a lawyer because you know Laura was on my show for like a yeah, year and change and then course. got her own show on series and I was like I'm I need someone to come in with legal stuff. Lorie came in it was legal but it was social justice it was I was like oh this is okay I have to reframe this and then she comes in with Eljoy Williams who does Sunday Civics. Eljoy, and that's that's work right that's work uh, head of the NAACP in Brooklyn. Uh, those local those local leaders in these organizations are doing the work, and, yes. you, and you just want to not just reward people, but also let folk know it's not a handful. There's no pick me people in this in this realm. There's just work, and then those of us who have platforms have to magnify the work. So I purposely go out and look. Hill Harper's going to be on the show on Monday, as a matter of fact. So, <sighs> Yeah, I'm looking for. Are you for real? So I want to look at his face. You know, okay, you turn down that twenty million. What? So what? What? What are you going to do for Michigan? Like, we need to be able to challenge people in love, right? There's no get you. So everyone's like, you need to bring someone on a debate. I'm not trying to debate. I'm trying to extract information for you so that you can make an informed decision. This ain't a debate. This ain't versus. We got to get out of that mentality. This is a place of learning, and we have to learn more so that we can be better citizens and better human beings in our community. But that I'm I'm done. Okay. All right. No, 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 no. This is you know, we're all in the same vein. The act of refusal, the nah, and what happens when we refuse isn't because we're trying to argue. It's because we have to set things right, and there is right and wrong. And you're right. That framing of verses, that framing, you know, criticism and critique, which are kind of distinct. But you know, what is the ultimate objective? You know, the words, as I said last week when I was in Atlanta, of. Uh, Elder Mariba Kelsey continue to resonate for me and so all of us who are in contact with this brother when he says, you know, why do we say we must agree to disagree? Let's agree to disagree. He said, no, you're setting up the fight. And people say, well, in this in this paper, I argue, why are you why is the language argument? Why is it why is it constantly, you know, the rapier of criticism? Blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. Bob Mariba says, why don't we start with let's agree to agree? Let's agree to agree. It, cha it changes the framework. Last night, and I'll talk about this more in a minute, but, you know, last night we were together in the ongoing intermittent convening in Nubia, and shout out to Bobby Urias, the genius of, of, of Urias is just never ending again. All these brilliant people. And, uh, yeah, Eljoy and um, Lurie are probably in here right now. I'm probably looking at, at getting the Nubia chat up because uh, these sisters, again, always, you never see them by themselves 
you know, last time I saw Eljoy was at the National Museum of African History and Culture, and she had her whole family there, all the kids, her friends, and Eljoy don't go nowhere by herself. Same thing with Larry, and they bring all of that energy, all those connections, all of that. Here's how we organize energy into that platform, and it just expands. So, you know, thinking about that in the context of agreeing to agree, you know, last night we were in Nubia and Refill. You know, this is you know, which started uh, when um bobby Reyes had a, a silent oscar me show film showing in nubia and the chat people just like all these people convening having this conversation around this film and it's continued uh and realized that our resident maroon um dr sunyata amin had um the film the brazilian film quilombo which was before we had these electronic devices to stream anything we wanted anytime we wanted was like a rare thing when it came out on um vcr or vhs and then dvd you got a copy of quilombo that was a big deal you know we i remember in philly we used to show quilombo man people be cheering well it streamed in uh nubia and refill <laughs> people just got fired up <laughs> i just want i just want to join um to say uh anyone can get you know um boycott or quilombo you can mm -hmm. watch it yourself there was something last night the experience oh, of watching this film with 1200 plus people mm -hmm. chatting commenting bringing out different thoughts that you know you might have missed because again this is why community is important this is why they say don't forsake the assembly it's two or more gathered it's because we need each other to 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 gain a deeper understanding of a thing that was so beautiful and when when you figured out the tech part i was wow. like you know, but you know the light bulb was going off, Dr. Yeah. Carver. I was like, yeah. the possibilities with this thing, forget mm. about a damn um Sundance uh thing or whatever. If you have a film that you need to screen, you need to come mm. over to Nubia because at least you're gonna get the kind of feedback that will help make your film better or at least help get the word out of it's really good. But that was a beautiful experience oh. last night. And I just want to thank you, Reyes, because that the first time, and this is trial and error. You don't know something's gonna work till you do it. Watching that silent film and then the comments were hilarious <laughs> with I think for the very first time. And every iteration <laughs> after that has been just like amazing. And we're just growing in that. So I want to thank both of y'all because that was your idea. Well, uh, Uraeus, and, and thank you, Prof. And you're right, last night was was just transformative. In fact, I might as well, you know, talk about it now for a minute. Um as you said, I mean, it's one thing to watch anything, to experience anything by yourself or with a couple of people. But when you empty into a space with thousands, and like I say, we had 1,200 plus last night on a Friday night on the East Coast, and not just in the US, but globally, watching a film. And I've seen Boycott more times than I could even estimate. I first saw it when it came out in 2001, as I explained last night. Um, when I first shared the story of the New York African burial ground with undergraduate students at Howard, and they badgered me and badgered me until uh, I was able to get a bus and take about 40 of them up to the burial ground the week, the year after the, uh, the reinterment and of the remains. And on the way up there, about two hours south of New York, I put in Boycott, the film, the DVD, and by the time we got to the city, that's all they wanted to talk about. That was 20 years ago, almost. And 
since then, you know, that was that's my go-to film when we when I take students somewhere, if we're traveling, I'll put that in because it's such a powerful thing. But but I've never experienced it. Never experienced it like I did last night. And the comments and the and and the insights that were shared. I mean, for those who don't know, Boycott is a 2001 film that was directed by Clark Johnson, the actor, producer. You probably know him from The Wire. He played Gus Johnson, I think was his uh, fictional name, the editor of the one of the editors of the Baltimore Sun in The Wire and um, Homicide, Life on the Streets, other things. But this piece, which featured Jeffrey Wright as Martin Luther King. Carmen Jogo as a Coretta Scott King. They actually met on that set and afterward had mar got married, had children. Um, you know, they, they they he jokingly talks about falling in love with her on that set and trying to impress her as Martin Luther King, even though, as Clark Johnson said, when they accepted the Peabody Award for that film, uh, introduced, by the way, this is how old it is, by Walter Cronkite. <laughs> you can believe that. He said that Jeffrey Wright made Coretta Scott King cry with his portrayal. And, um, and it, it, it never ceases to make me emotional to watch that film. But last night, I mean, and we, we, we're going to talk about it Monday night in office hours for all the folk who are in Nubia. We're going to kind of continue to process because it was a very powerful convening because it was the comments, as you say, Prof. It was the fact that, you know, when you see the, the first uh, full length song in what is a brilliant soundtrack, original soundtrack and songs, everybody from B.B. Winans and Stevie Wonder singing Jesus, Children of America to end to Sweet Honey in the Rock pairing with Aaron Neville and We Who Believe in Freedom Cannot Rest, Ella's song, all the way through Kirk Franklin and Revolution as they're boycotting. I mean, you can't Dizzy Gillespie, Sweet, Swing Low, Sweet Cadillac is in there with the brothers going through the field and the old man saying, I'm not getting on the bus. I mean, with his actions as the moves from color to black and white. I mean, the cinematography, everything. But when, you know, as as, as Nat Cole, as the, as you see, the record as Coretta's hand drops on the album in their little house in Montgomery and they start dancing to gee it's great have to stay in our lane walking my baby back home the great Nat Cole who is from Montgomery every choice in this film in turn it's just beautiful but um somebody in the chat says my mom went to high school with Nat Cole and starts talking about Nat Cole and Montgomery. What? <laughs> I mean, people talking. I mean, E.D. Nixon played, of course, by Reggie Gaines, which just uh, a Kathy, Reggie Kathy, just, I mean, a brilliant portrayal of one ancestor by now another ancestor who kind of like, and somebody in the chat said, he steals every scene he's in. And then a whole commentary about this brother's acting chops. Um, the chronology of the Montgomery bus boycott coming out. And then people just commenting back and forth, decisions that are made, the contention, and of course, people adding the historical events to fact check the movie in real time, because there are a couple of uh, fictional characters in the movie. We see Whitman Mayo and people in the chat saying, is that Grady? Is that Grady? Yes, that's the brother who played Grady and said for this son, who uh, of course now is an ancestor, but He's a fictional character. Now, he wasn't a minister in the uh, in the film, but other brothers were ministers and other sisters. Joanne Robinson, you know, as Uraeus was working alchemy last night to get that conjure so we could have the actual film played after my attempt at YouTube failed. And I'm now scrambling. So can I get the, I got the DVD? Let me see. But Uraeus figured it out how to get it going. As we were doing that, you know, it had just begun in the great CC Pounder. Of course, whose acting chops are off the charts, playing Joanne Robinson, uh, professor of English at 
uh, Alabama State College at the time, now Alabama State University in Montgomery, who, along with the other sisters there, had started the Women's Political Council, which was the backbone of the Montgomery uh, movement and the Montgomery Improvement Association, even though she was not an officer in the MIA because she was a state employee. And again, they were protecting her and her job, but it was the sisters. In fact, uh, it gave us a chance while Urias was working it out to show her mugshot. And then she is smiling like these black people are so cool. Like, nah, you're not going, but you're not going to knock this smile off my face. In other words, I know what this is and you know what it is. Um, seeing her, and uh, David Garrow edited her memoir, which is the memoir of Joanne Robinson, uh, the Montgomery Bus Boycott and the women who who uh, started it. You see all of these things in the film, but it made me think about it because, you know, when Baba Mariba says, let us agree to agree. Uh, there was a member of Martin Luther King's uh, congregation at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, who was a baseball coach you know, well, uh, a well-established pillar of the community who wasn't a rival of, but didn't think that Edgar Daniel Nixon, Edie Nixon, who of course was the major figure in Montgomery, and in many ways, the architect of, of things that had come up to the 1955, uh, um, uh, Pullman man, member of the Brotherhood of Stephen Carporters and chambermaids, who was very close with uh, Asa Philip Randolph, uh, Edgar Daniel Nixon had been an organizer since he was a kid. This man was a fearless man by all accounts. But to see him and uh, arguing and not being picked to be the leader of the Montgomery Improvement Association, but given the job of being the treasurer for the MIA. So your job is to make sure we have the finances right to finance a boycott that ended up stretching for a year. And then the other brother who is with Martin Luther King is like, yeah, they make him the chair of the transportation committee. So your job is to make sure all of the fleet of vehicles, we either purchase them or get the people to keep pay for upkeep and gas and keep and get this thing organized. And here you see him sitting, them two brothers sitting side by side. I'm thinking about Baba Mariba. Let us agree to agree. We have been contestants before, but our ultimate objective must be served. And here's CeCe Pounder and these other sisters in the room. Here's Rosa Parks, prayed brilliantly. Here they are grappling with these things, but ultimately they have an objective. Even the slip in at the beginning of uh, Claudette Coven being pulled off of that bus and, and the music behind her is so, it, it, I mean, it's just a powerful combination, but ultimately this is a, this is a film based by the way, on a documentary, uh, a set of documentary uh, notes that were compiled and published under the title of, uh, the name of the book is Daybreak of Freedom, Daybreak of Freedom. And the book was edited by the guy who um, edited volume three of the Martin Luther King papers, the project at Stanford, which is by the way, Sandra Day O'Connor's alma mater, which we'll talk about in a minute, she made transition and I'm tying some of these things together. But the film is so powerful because it is virtually historically accurate. When you see the little girl sitting on the step and a little black girl reads the flyer that was passed out by Joanne Robinson and them after they ran off thousands of copies on the mimeograph machines at Alabama State serendipitously, because you know, they get fired for that. And you see the little girl with the two other little girls sitting uh, between, she's sitting between, there's three young girls, the little girl is sitting reading the flyer with one girl on the left, one girl on the right. And he says, Stu uh, 
parents and children stay off the buses in Montgomery. And then she looks and smiles. You see a little gap in her teeth where she lost her, or her child too. It's like, I mean, everything's pitch perfect. But again, agreeing to agree. Mrs. Parks, who had been to Highlander Folk School because E.D. Nixon had been there with Miles Horton. And then when Horton said, we got a scholarship for somebody to go, he said, Miss Parks, you should go. Take our time and go. And that's where she gets with Septa McClark and Ella Jo Baker. And these black women, again, at the center of this. Coretta King, of course, who is the one who introduced Martin King to a, a great deal of the nonviolent theory, sitting with Bayard Rustin, played, in my mind, brilliantly as an understated Rustin by Eric Dellums. And it's just, I mean, you see them. And then, of course, him saying, oh, yeah, you know, this must be new. She said, no, I'm from here. I'm, I'm from uh, down the street in Marion. It's not far from here. And then, he, and then uh, uh, Rustin says, well, you must not have liked our northern ways. And Coretta Scott King says, no, no, I liked him very much. In other words, you know, you, you get a hint of the complexity of Coretta Scott King. But in the chat, you see people saying, you know, there should have been more of Coretta in there. And I fully agree. It should have been more of that because she, in many ways, she wasn't just a partner with her husband. She was a leader of her husband. And, of course, after he makes transition after he is assassinated, after he is brutally killed by this funky-ass system and its agents. You know, go see Pepper's book on the assassination of Martin Luther King, codenamed Zorro, Mark Lane, and Dick Gregory. Even read Jonathan Igg's new book on King. You know, you see, and of course, when the, when the tapes are released, I'm sure the FBI is going to try to put themselves in best light. But let's be very clear. It's a conspiracy. Let's be very clear. As Hakeem Abudi said, conspiracies aren't about a bunch of people getting in one room and coming up with a game plan. Conspiracies take place over centuries between people who never knew each other and across miles of places with people who never knew each other. Conspiracy is a mindset, what you're trying to do, what's your objective. But, you know, thinking about that, the people, folks in the chat and having a conversation like, yeah, I wanted to see more of that Coretta. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect piece of art. But the but the way that we had that conversation last night was really indescribable and you know this this space that we have that began now i guess we'll be coming up on four years shortly with conversations that emptied into the quarantine space after you having carried them on for so long in the other spaces including serious prof i mean it just it is a place that gives us shelter it gives us the ability to be and you know, as we sit now on the 2nd of December, and as folks who are watching this later, we're in the corridor now from 68 years ago. The Montgomery bus boycott did not start when Rosa Parks said she wasn't going to give up her seat. And of course, there were four black women in that line, Miss Parks and another sister on one side and two other sisters on the left side. And when the white boy came down to move the little sign back to make this other, let this other white person have a seat, or take a seat, not have, take a seat. All the women were supposed to get up and move to the back. Three of the women moved. Miss Parks was on the aisle. She scooted to around and let the other lady out and then sat there. It was not planned. But once it happened, Edgar Daniel Nixon was like, oh yeah, we, this is the one. This is the one, Mrs. Parks. And so he started immediately, he called her friend Johnny Carr, same spelling as mine. We probably, our ancestors probably escaped from the same plantation. But he said, Miss Parks got arrested. Miss Parks? Yeah, he knew what could happen. It was Edie Nixon, which is one divergence in the film, who approached Martin Luther King first. So the meeting, the, the, the meeting where they come together and this thing, and Nixon is roasting them because he had to go out of town. He's a Pullman man. He had to make a run that weekend. 
between December the 1st and December the 5th when they start to boycott. And when he came back to town, he's helping them pass out flyers. You see him and uh, Joanne Robinson passing out flyers and they go into the churches and getting everybody, uh, 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 Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy go to the pool hall. And of course, uh, even in the chat, folks, uh, the brother was like, yeah, you know how Terrence Howard got that job as uh, to play Ralph Abernathy and people like spill the tea, spill the tea. We'll talk about that Monday night, but in office hours. But it's interesting because you know Terrence Howard is not Ralph Abernathy in terms of even how he looks or moves, but the ethos, the the earnestness, the passion. And as somebody said in the chat last night, Terrence Howard just plays Terrence Howard and everything, which is kind of true. But at the same time, it it it, it synced with the kind of force that Ralph Abernathy had. A lot of people play Ralph Abernathy short and there were cameos dropped throughout. Abernathy is in there. You see him coming in. And it's like, what, Abernathy? Because when Dr. King comes in to get that first speech after the first day of the boycott, it's Abernathy who greets him and said, we've been waiting for you. Oh, <laughs> wow. But anyway, I'm saying I have to say that it's one thing to watch that by yourself or watch that with two or three or four other people, or in my case, 40, or when we were taking 200 uh, students, freshmen from Howard up there when we were still doing the Howard College of Arts and Sciences freshman seminar, which we don't do anymore. You know, the it was one thing to do that even with them. It's quite another thing to do with, you know, thousand people from all over the world. And so we're in that corridor now where Mrs. Parks arrests on the first, to the fifth when they start to boycott, which lasts for over a year. And in that quarter, as we've already started talking about it and really just continuing in this vein of nah, nah, eh, what happens when we refuse? If we refuse and nobody else comes, then that refusal is no less valid. In fact, it's probably more courageous. However, will it be effective in terms of what we're trying to accomplish? And then what are we trying to accomplish? Again, what is our objective? That has to drive our conversation. Uh, as Kwame Ture used to say uh, all the time, who was, you know, very close with Dr. King, a person who King was bringing up along with Jesse Jackson, along with Dorothy Cotton, along with so many others as his replacements and Andrew Young and so many others, regardless of what they did after he was gone. But as uh, Kwame Ture, then Stortley Carmichael would say, you know, if you put Martin Luther King in Birmingham by himself, you put him in Montgomery by himself, will be killed. History is not made by individuals. It's made by the masses of the people. The masses of the people, you see. It's clear. It's very clear. My man, my man, Stanley Carroll, Kwame Ture. Love that brother, as do we all. As do we all. But, you know, Kwame Ture, again, another example. Dr. Morrow, yesterday, yesterday Morrow, Lynn Morrow in the uh, chat yesterday talking about the spirit of SNCC in that there is no SNCC in 1955, but there was a Southern Negro Youth Conference that preceded SNCC. Rosa Parks was indeed the secretary of the youth division of the NAACP at that time, and SNCC is on the way. C.T. Vivian and John Lewis and Diane Nash and Jim Bevel and Marion S. Barry. And so many shout out, by the way, to uh, Southeast D.C. Uh, two weeks ago, they changed the name of Good Hope Road over in Southeast to Marion Barry Way. Uh, shout out to Coral Masters Barry and so many others who were present there. But they're on the way. They're already on the planet. They're going to come into existence in 1960. And you see the tensions there. And all of that finds its way into this piece of art that is provocative. And it was Nubia and Refill that let us have this global conversation, which, which is really un, 
irreplaceable. So this, this act of refusal, what happens when we refuse? Well, uh, as I said uh, at the beginning a minute ago, um, the last week of class, we're in the last weeks of classes in the education systems, K-12 in the U.S. and colleges, universities around the country, you know, emptying in now to the commercial season known as Christmas. Mm. And, oh, by the way, shout out to and best of luck to Prairie View and Florida A&M playing today in the Southwestern Athletic Conference Championship in Tallahassee. If FAM wins, uh, FAM will represent the SWAC uh, on the weekend, I think, of November the 15th or 16th uh, at the Celebration Bowl in Atlanta. It'll be FAM versus Howard, and it's going to be a hot time in the old town, as Malcolm X would say. I hope they're still in Atlanta. Sherman burned it down in the 19th century. I don't know about the 21st with Howard versus FAM in Atlanta. But... <clears throat> thinking about, you know, the impact of the last week of classes, folks are wrapping up, people are burnt out, people ready to go sit down for two uh, days or two weeks or however long they have if you're in school, all the young people and uh, K-12 and all the students in college, university, all the teachers, all of your teachers, every last one, all, all of your teachers, including this one. So, but of course, we've jailbroken the Black University. What we did last night, what we do every day in narrative, that's the community. That is that is the community, all of us together. And every little contribution of resources gets plowed back into that platform and it's just growing and burgeoning. So it is now not unusual for folks to drop in on my class. I see somebody in the class, I come in, good morning, let's get to work, good afternoon, let's get to work, and I'll see somebody I don't recognize. And you know, it used to be, and it still is. People will bring their relatives, uh, their siblings, folk come in, you know, and sit in and my, my room, my classroom open. But now it's also now started to be newbies. Our sister from Detroit that came in early on, who just retired from working in the school systems as a counselor. My only regret is she didn't tell me till the end she was in there, else I'd have asked her to do what I asked this sister to do that I'm about to talk about for a second that came in on Thursday. Uh, shout out to Jessica Williams, Dr. Jessica Williams, who just took her PhD at Howard University. Uh, she's an engineer, computer scientist, brilliant sister. Her son, Junius, uh, one of my favorite students, uh, he works over at the Moreland Spingarn collection, research collection. He's getting a PhD in history, young brother. But it was Junius who came by Tuesday and said, hey, man, my grandma, Jessica's mother, Miss Williams, wants to come sit in on class. I said, well, you we, we, I got one more class. I mean, you know, if she comes by, that's good. Tell her, of course, she can come anytime she wants. She's in town. Oh, yeah, yeah, she wants to come. I say, hey, man, no, of course. So I come in Tuesday morning to my Education in Black America class, and we have covered a huge amount of work. Um, by the way, we're, we're working on a book together because um, Dr. Ayo Sakai, a Black woman, publisher, the only Black uh, academic press publisher that we have, female or male, and uh, she uh, graduated from Howard some years ago with a PhD in political science. And Dr. Sakai came by the class about a month ago. I'm on her board uh, the, uh, for a publishing company. And she just came to sit in and she heard the conversation the students were having about their experiences growing up black and education systems in the U.S. on the continent of Africa, in the Caribbean. Because, you know, HBCUs, people say they aren't diverse. OK, you mm -mm, not going to do it. Gonna hold that comment. Just know that the world is majority non-white, overwhelmingly non-white, and you're about to find out. So at any rate, these are the most diverse 
places you want to find. These, these black folk from all over the world. And they were having a conversation comparing discipline tactics, you know, everything from enforcing these uniform codes to length of hair. I mean, all these kind of, and it was just remarkable and striking to hear these 18 to 22 year olds talk about that in the context of what we've been studying all year. They talk about the Little Rock Nine, but they don't talk about Dunbar High School and Horace Mann High School where they went to before. And they don't talk about what happened after they went in there and they attacked those black girls trying to get them out of Central High School on disciplinary charges and how some things have changed and many things haven't changed. So we're having this conversation. The I.O. afterwards said, you know what? Y'all should do a book on this. And so I changed the final project. So the students are completing their final projects due next week, uh, their first drafts for a book on how they're comparing their educational experiences as young people of African descent to the educational experiences of our ancestors in segregated education and the first battering ram attempts to smash segregation in education. So it's, it's very interesting. So we're having that conversation now. So they're primed to have this. Last day of class was Thursday. So I come in, good morning, All right, let's get to work. We, we work. Now we're working on these final papers, which are the first drafts of this book now. We all writing a book together. We're gonna do this together and I look up, I see Dr. Williams, and there's this elder sitting next to her with this fly little kind of almost like a Sherlock Holmes houndtooth cap on, like, sitting in the cut. I'm like, oh, excuse me. Hello. She said, hello. I said, it's nice to see you. I suspected I knew who it was. She said, that's nice to see you too. Everybody's sitting there. They, everybody, all the young people looking back now because they're sitting near the back. Look at that. I said, you mind if I ask, uh, why'd you come visit today? She said, I said, well, what's your name? She told me, I'm Miss Williams. Oh, Miss Williams. Oh, that's your daughter. Okay. Well, word on the street is you that you might come back. I said, I come by here. I said, well, why'd you come today? She looked me dead in my face. You know how black women look. She said, I came to see you. <laughs> I said, you came to see me. She says, I watch you every day. I watch you all the time. I don't miss anything. And she started talking about Saturdays. She mentioned rolling. But she started talking about this space, Professor Hunter. The, the Black university has been jailbroken. As far as I'm concerned, she's at the center of what we do. The universities, K-12, that's the periphery. Very important, but it's on the periphery. The community must be the center of this education. So you know what we had to do. Because, you know, I said, okay, well, everybody knows the assignment. We've chopped it up a million times. We've had two weeks now of workshopping and going through the ideas. And this is perfect. I said, y'all, we've been in here since the last week of August. We couldn't have planned this any better. We are now going to hear from someone who has lived education in black America. She said, I'll be 90 my next birthday next year. I'm 89. I said, we about to hear from a master teacher. If it's all right with you, Miss Williams. And she know how black women. She said, of course, I'll, I'll say a few words. I said, so tell us, you know, when did you have your first white teacher? She said, I never had a white teacher. Now, imagine these young people now, now, now they've been reading about this. We read James Anderson, the Education of Blacks in the South. We read W.B. Du Bois, the Education of Black People. By the way, Monday night, we are doing the next, uh, the next uh, speech, the first speech in the uh, Education of Black People in Nubia. It's already been posted. We'll be talking about the 1906 speech that Du Bois gave that we previewed last Monday, the Hampton idea. So this is what we're going to be talking about uh, Monday night in Nubia. So we read that in, in this class. We read Young, Gifted, and Black, the book edited by Teresa Perry with uh, contributions by Claude Steele and Bafor Amankwatia uh, II, um, Asa Hilliard III. Uh, we read that book. We read The Lost Education of Horace Tate, 
on the American Teachers Association, the ATA, uh, by Vanessa Siddle Walker. Uh, we, we read all that. So, so, so the students know it theoretically. They even know it from members of their family, their grandparents or great-grandparents. But to have this elder sitting here, 89 years old, say, I never had a white teacher. I said, what do you mean, Ms. Wynn? She said, oh, my teacher, I, I, I went to the segregated schools. Woo! Mm-mm. And those students now, everybody's like, wow. So, of course, they're going to apply her with questions in a moment. So I just asked her a little few more. So then what? She said, well, she said, I want to be a nurse. But I went to Nashville because I couldn't get into nursing school. They wouldn't let me in. And I went to business school. I said, you went to business school in Nashville? I'm from Nashville. So she smiled. She started talking about going to business. And then she said, then I went into the Army. I said, Ms. Williams, you went into the Army? She said, yeah. Hmm. I said, the only women I knew know who were in the army. What is, what is this? The 60s, the 50s, or the 50s? I said, oh. I said, the only women I know who were in the army in the 50s were in the Women's Army Corps. You weren't a whack, were you? She said, I was a whack. I said, shit, I couldn't have paid. <laughs> Anybody, the black women who were in the Women's Army Corps, when it was set, I said, well, y'all segregated? She said, not in the daytime, but the barracks were segregated. And then she said, I was stationed at Fort Sam Houston. Then they sent me to Atlanta. I see she said, I spent one night in Atlanta because they had me in the barracks with the white girls and they couldn't stand it. After one night, they shipped me out for my next assignment. And then she said, you know, I was in these barracks. And then she talked about being in barracks with all black women. And she said, but there were two white girls who they put in there with us. She said they were homosexual. Now, that's the language my mama would have used. You know what I'm saying? That generation. I said, wait a minute, hold on. So they didn't mind. They couldn't stand you before one night with the white women, but the white women who were gay, they put them with y'all. And I'm thinking to myself, well, what happened to don't ask, don't tell? So you did know. <laughs> so, so the idea that somehow that these reprobates would think that Gen that sexuality, homosexuality is some kind of disease or some kind of uh, 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 stigma. And so you put them with the black. And so how did y'all treat them? She said, we treated them like people. See, there's that standard of humanity. And she's leading us through this. She eventually did go to nursing school. She went to Norfolk State University. She said, I went, and then I went, I got, I got out of the army. I went to Norfolk State. I said, oh, behold the green and gold. You know, that's their shout at, at, at Norfolk. She said, yeah. And of course, that's where her children and then grandchildren, and they all Virginians, but she came out of Georgia. And it was just fascinating to hear her talk because then she worked for over a generation as a nurse. She got her nursing degree and she worked as, as a nurse, think Richmond General Hospital. And one of the young ladies who was sitting right in front of her looked there and said, that's where I'm from. I said, you know this hospital? She said, I know the hospital. And then they started talking. So it was just a beautiful moment, but it was all sparked because of this space. It wasn't sparked because of the academy it wasn't sparked because somebody invited some no it's sparked because we have space now where we are the center of we and that was more valuable as a finishing moment to anything else in linking what we study to the living now and it was just a beautiful thing and i, and I was told instructed in fact to pass those greetings on and that gratitude on to you and so i i, I pass it on to you and to all of us here because this is what makes that possible so, you know, we'll, 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 we'll keep this short today. Um, there have been a number of transitions since we were together. The war criminal, Henry, Henry Kissinger, 
uh, is is uh, now on the other side, no doubt, arguing with uh, millions. Uh, did, millions. Did you see the Huffington Post headline? No. What did it, what did Huff Post say? What was I, I saw the Rolling Stone, but I didn't see Huff Post. What did they say? Wait. What did Rolling Stone say? Uh, Rolling Stone's headline was Henry Kissinger, war criminal beloved by America's ruling class, finally dies. <laughs> that okay. Was, well, Huffington well, Post finally dies. That's oh, that's nasty. So, uh, Huffington Post, Henry Kissinger, America's most notorious war criminal, dies at one at one hundred. The titan of American foreign policy was complicit in millions of deaths and never showed remorse for his decisions. That's the headline. I said, Ooh. okay, it's, it's not it's not hard to tell the truth, y'all. It really isn't. It's no, not. It hard. isn't. Come on, it it really isn't. And in many ways, our refusal, our nag from enslavement, but certainly from really, yeah, you know, and I think the argument can be made, and I agree with Fred Gray, of course, um, David Garrow, Taylor Branch, all of the black people who have told their stories from that period, from the 50s, for in many ways, the United States of America starts in reconstruction as a possibility. And then a hundred years later, the American Negro comes back and says, nah, in many ways, there is no, I mean, and I would agree with those who said, now, I don't follow it to the conclusion that ultimately this country can be perfected. I think it's going to fall apart. In fact, there's a fascinating new book called by Jeff Charlotte. I just started reading it called uh, Scenes from a Civil War, The Undertow. And it's fascinating to me because, you know, you know how I'll be in the bookstore, I'll be looking at a book and this kind of thing. And then I'll go through the table of contents. And the first section, there are three sections of this book. The first is Deo on hope. The second, <laughs> dream on, on vanity, taken from, of course, Aerosmith, you know, which is played incessantly, according to Charlotte, at these Donald Trump rallies. So y'all know uh, Aerosmith. How does it go? Uh, Every day when I look in the mirror, all these lines on my face getting clearer. Mm, the past is gone. Mm. It's a very interesting song, Dream On. It's a very interesting song because it's almost like an, a, a lament. It's, you know, Aerosmith is during that period, Kansas does carry on my wayward son. You know, those of you who are into rock, y'all know them narratives. But the third section is Good Night Irene. And I say, what the hell? These are Harry Belafonte titles. And damn if this book isn't anchored around race. He takes Belafonte as a point of entry and starts talking about, let me just say this. He starts, tell me, see if I can find it. This book of stories of difficult people doing terrible things is a register also of grief and its distortions. How loss sometimes curdles into fury and hate or denial or delusion, especially delusion. He starts talking about how these white people feel like they're losing something. This is the January 6th stuff. But how black people, out of their acts of refusal, create possibility, create a possibility of transformation and how a system that recognizes that tries to absorb those refusals and re-narrate them as commitments to that system. That's a lie. Yes. So that's why I say. You know, and, and, and by the way, Stephen Tyler told President, uh, told uh, that thing not to play that music. He told him. Stephen I Tyler, saw that uh, right. Yeah, stop playing but, but, our music. But and he did tell him that. But the thing, the the, the the irony of Dream On is that it absolutely fits. It absolutely fits a Trump rally. This is the point he's making in the sense that 
you know, when you play Lee Greenwood, you know, I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. That's a complete fabrication delusion. That's a delusion. That is it. But underneath that is the fear and the angst. Underneath that is the fear and the angst. Dream on. In other words, I fear this. I'm looking in the mirror. I'm getting older. My life is deteriorating before my eyes. I'm desperate now. I need something. Here comes a man who looks like I feel. Plastic, melting, molting, shriveling, <laughs> with little hands, you know, and a, you know, a fake millionaire. You know what I'm saying? So something resonates with me. You know, uh, yeah, I wanted to rape. I wanted to be a billionaire. He's living my fantasy. Yeah, somebody did it. And now he's saying he's going to put everybody in the concentration camp. Now he's going to take away my health care. I don't care because ultimately underneath this fear is a sadness. Every day when I look in the mirror, all these lines on my face getting clear. Dream on is a song for a Trump rally. You know, you can say I'm proud to be an American, but underneath or God bless the USA. No, no, no. That's the bravado. Underneath the bravado is the hatred. And underneath the hatred is the fear because you're going to die. The same night awaits us all, even if you live a hundred years. Kissinger, you kill her. So if there are ancestors that to guide us, and I'm one who absolutely lives in the fact that there are, then it's a bunch of people, East Timorese gonna have a word with you. A bunch of Vietnamese gonna have a word with you. It's a bunch of Africans gonna have a word with you because of what Kissinger did in Angola. What he did by propping up those fascists, by, by getting in bed with Joseph Mobutu and what was then Zaire. But you didn't count on the Cubans and the Russians, did you, baby? Because, see, when you was in bed with the South Africans and the Rhodesians, when you were trying to uh, undermine the efforts for freedom, the re acts of refusal in some, what is now Zimbabwe, when, those, when you were against Nelson Mandela and them and you were propping up the apartheid government, you fascists, you, sir, you, sir, didn't count on the fact that our act of refusal was global. And when Castro sent those troops and those materials to uh, to Angola and connected with the Soviet backers that he had, as you were trying to play a game of detente, well, Mr. Kissinger, they beat your ass in Africa. Uh, it sent me back to Walter Isaacson, the first book on Kissinger, to reread that chapter on Kissinger in Africa and his failures. But underneath that, you believe, sir, that we were not human. And now nobody cares what you believe because the same night awaits us all. And either, either those of you who believe in hell, where you think he is? By the way, thank you, Baba J. Dr. Jeremiah Wright, I had to mention him because, like I said last week, after Bishop Carlton Pearson made transition, I said I was going to reach out to Baba J and ask him what he thought. And sure enough, the man never disappoints. He said, Carlton Pearson took, <laughs> you will believe this, prop. Everybody, I'm sure y'all will. Carlton Pearson took a class with Jeremiah Wright and Alan Bozak in South Africa. And in Baba J and Alan Bozak talking about a range of issues and how they connect with Christianity and with faith and with religion, questions of gender, how all of God's children are God's children, including LBGTQIA and anybody else who might be called queer or whatever. Carlton Pearson said, I never heard any of this discussed theologically. I never heard any of this tied to theology. And, he's, and Bob Jay said he wrote a final paper for that class, a final paper for that class. 
that revealed a tectonic shift in his thinking about all kinds of possibilities, everything from heaven and hell to the question of inclusion. And so the literal interpretation of the Bible versus the metaphorical, I mean, all this stuff. Pearson is opened up by this class he took with Wright and Bozak. And of course, Alan Bozak, the great anti-apartheid leader and very good friend, Jeremiah Wright, and defender. When Obama and them came for Jeremiah Wright, because he said, nah, he said, nah, standing in truth in his mind, and in his public witness, nah, this is wrong. This country is wrong on this. And damn it, just like Martin Luther King said, it's going to go to hell. This is what's going to happen. And y'all going to come for him for that? Barack Obama, you calculate, hey, I ain't mad at you. I mean, you're doing good things in the world. You're making Netflix movies on Rust and stuff like that. But Jeremiah Wright, nah. Alan Bozak had his back. He's no Rachel Maddow. Alan Bozak is like, nah, what you've done? And then he came for Obama. He said, nah, you, you got to kill this, all these drone strikes, man. And you want to you have come for this man when you were running for president, using him as a stepping stone? Because these people then told you you need to distance yourself. But anyway, Bozak and Wright taught that class. Pearson took that class. And it's after that that you see the shift. Now, if you want to make say that's the smoking gun, I'm comfortable saying that. But what you can't deny is he wasn't talking like that before that class. So thank you, Bobby J, for saying that. So, you know, Carl Pearson, course I, I was watching one of the many funerals i think they had about five or six over the last few days i just looked at and i'm looking at these folk dragging carlton pearson right back to that narrow way of knowing that he had transcended at least theologically and you realize that people kind of create their ways of knowing in a system where they've been brutalized too often out of fear so it's interesting to watch that this week now we know in addition to uh, Kissinger uh, going over to get his just reward at 100, over 100, making money to the last day, meeting with every damn Chinese leader from Mao Zedong all the way to Xi Jinping. He was just over in in, in China padding his uh, accounts. But we know Senator Day O'Connor made transition. It was very interesting. The acts of refusal. We're in a social structure now where we find ourselves in a structure we have altered because of our acts of refusal. We are not going to be subject to this oppressive system. We are going to resist it. And again, we'll talk more about this Monday night in terms of the meaning of Montgomery, because as I was talking with students this week, last day of class in my education in black America class, I asked them again, something we talked about prof here when it happened, when I was in Kemet and we talked about it in August with the, uh, the white folding chair right there in Montgomery. And then of course, again, when I was down there, about a, about a month uh, and a half ago. But, you know, that white chair doesn't just symbolize frustration as you and and and, and Baba Omotosho, Dr. Black, Dan Black talked about in, 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 in that wide valence, that conversation of what the meaning of that chair is. You know, we will choose violence. Oh, we will choose violence. We will, <laughs> In fact, Ms. Williams told a story about choosing violence. I mean, she was in the military after all. She, I said, Miss Williams, you chose violence. I mean, you know, we chose violence. Why? That violence is always there. In, in the film Boycott, E.D. Nixon standing there with Martin Luther King in a metaphorical moment when they burnt uh, the little outhouse that uh, E.D. Nixon has, a little shed, and it's on fire, and the damn white boy sitting over there at the fire department just watching it burn. He's standing there next to King saying, I'm not nonviolent. I'm not like you. Of course, we know that after they bombed at the King's house and Ralph Abernathy's house, those brothers went down and got gun permits. But that's a story for another day. Maybe we talk about that Monday night. But you see the contesting. We're not a nonviolent people. We're human. 
This system tries to repurpose our Nas into these moments where we're just going to be the sacrificial lamb, what Derek Bell called the, the people who engage in the involuntary sacrifice. You know, we're just going to take this L because we believe in American democracy. That is a lie. It is not supported by the facts. You can listen to the rhetoric and you can watch our actions. Charlie Cobb, that nonviolent stuff will get you killed. Uh, I can yell the emoji, Baba AK, his book, We Will Shoot Back. I mean, no, no, no. We ain't never, no, we were strapped. Them ministers were strapped in Montgomery. Let's be clear. So I'm bringing all that up to say that, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor represented something that has been sapped out of the federal apparatus at this point in this, in this country. Our acts of refusal, which were anchored to the rhetoric, certainly not the practice, but the rhetoric of the U.S. framing documents, the United States Constitution, which forced these people to make a choice in a global situation where they were trying to emerge as the world power that Henry Kissinger then accelerated. This is the same Kissinger who, as a young member of the Harvard faculty, wrote a paper proposing the possibility of tactical and limited nuclear war, a position he rescinded later once he realized that that was mad, yes, as in mutually uh, uh, assured destruction. But the United States was expanding as a global power when Henry Kissinger comes to his toadying techniques. Because here's Kissinger's basic, this, the, the whole of Henry Kissinger's life can be summed up in one phrase, kiss important asses. Anyway, the point is that toadying to power, as Kissinger wants to be part of this plan, whether you're trampling over the Vietnamese, whether you're trampling over the East Timorians, whether you're trampling over the Angolans or the Zimbabweans or the South Africans, whether you're trampling over millions and endorsing Cambodians, whether you are behind the assassination of Salvador Allende in, 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 in Argentina on the, in Chile rather, in Chile on the 11th of September, 1973. You don't care as long as you get power and the people who are powerful look to you and you move forward. As they're expanding, our act of refusal becomes tactically impossible to square because the majority, the world, which is majority non-white, is looking at the Soviets, looking at the Chinese who are saying, don't listen to the Americans, look at how they do to people who look like you or look close to you. And so the United States got to make some concessions. This is Brown versus Board of Education. Then the Montgomery bus boycott, our act of refusal allows these tacticians in the United States social structure to grant some limited concessions, you can sit anywhere you want on the bus. We'll take three of you into the school, but we need two of them to run a 4440 and the other to be a 4.0. Rest of you Negroes go to hell or HBCU. The point is that we're going to integrate. I think that's what you would call it, right? But the point is that as this is going, footnote, shout out to Deion Sanders. Uh, looks like things are working out so spectacularly in Colorado. Okay, back. As we see, the nah, the acts of refusal are accommodated because it fits the social structure. Nobody had a moral revelation. There's no Damascus Road moment for these people. There's no Saul of Tarsus in the fall. There's geopolitics and concessions. The domestic concessions are made to shore up the foreign ambitions of the United States of America. Well, that's going to last until it's not necessary for them to last. You've got the poor whites bristling. You've got the people who are fear-driven bristling. And so for a season at last, Senator Day O'Connor was snatched from a mid-level ju judicial appointment to the Supreme Court of the United States by Ronald Wilson Reagan in the early 80s, I think 1981, memory serves me correctly. Senator Dale O'Connor, who served in the Arizona legislature, the leader of the Arizona state legislature, state senator, uh, the uh, only legislator, ended up being the only person with legislative experience on the Supreme Court by the time she retired, I think in 2005, to uh, help take care of her husband, spend time with her husband. 
who eventually made transition out of Alzheimer's about five years later, four or five years later. Senator Day O'Connor was what they call now in all the obituaries a pragmatist. It's very interesting. Her commitment to the founding documents of the United States was strong enough to sustain some attempt to maintain a sense of legitimacy for the social structure that has been almost completely abandoned now that the white nationalists in the death rattle moment of their uh, power have just cast aside. They don't care now. Ain't no, ain't no rules. It ain't no rules. It's a lot of George Santos is running around in the federal legislature. You got rid of him because he's an eyesore and you're even willing to risk your temporary uh, uh, majority in the federal legislature by getting rid of him. And I'm saying, I don't know where, how this is going to play out, but I know that the impetus is because you don't want him there because it just reinforces the fact that y'all are all guilty. Now, of course, on his way out the door, he's threatening to expose a lot of people. And I know probably, you know, it happened so many years ago, it was about two or three hundred years ago that Madison Cawthorn was expelled or uh, didn't win re-election and then in his anger threatened to expose the sex parties in fact he talked about it, and then they very quickly anyway I think that was so long ago though it, I guess people have forgotten but the point I'm trying to make is as we kind of wind this up is that Sandra Day O'Connor is a fascinating figure because her judicial decisions did not go outside the lines of the Constitution of the United States or the statutes that she was interpreting, but they were absolutely populated by a pragmatic concern for keeping the social structure intact, one that doesn't exist today in the courts. Um, you know, you'll read these obituaries and they're gonna talk about abortion, for example, and they're gonna say that she saved abortion. Well, she did and saved it with a caveat. When you look at the Planned Parenthood versus Casey, a decision that she was part of the, I think it was 5-4 majority. Yeah, a lot of her decisions were 5-4. You know, what she's saying is that, let me see if I can remember, the, she was concerned in previous cases, first of all, you know, she was very open about the fact that she might not have decided that there was a woman's right to choose in the way that Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973. But O'Connor was a pragmatist. Once it was decided, it became a right that was so firmly entrenched that you couldn't just get rid of it. So you see her in earlier decisions, even in dissent saying, I don't know if I would have considered, uh, considered it the way that it was considered in Roe. However, if you're gonna tie it to viability of the fetus, she said, that's, that's a slippery slope. I'm worried about that. In fact, she called it a collision course. She said, you're setting the right to abortion on a collision course because the, t the medical science is gonna get better. And so the age of viability is going to get lower and you're setting the age of viability as the uh, reason why a woman can terminate a pregnancy up until the third trimester. Well, what happens when the second trimester, what happens in the first trimester? What's and she's, she's actually foreseeing what's going to happen. She says dangerous, but then you see her in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey um, uh, case. She said, yeah, the woman's right to choose is intact. It has been decided because it's too firmly entrenched now in the politics of the country and it's there. She said, but I'm worried about the impact of overturning it. She would not have ever voted to overturn Roe. But see, when she retired, she was replaced by the Christian soldier, Sam Alito. Now, it's interesting because the Christian soldier, Sam Alito, has an apocalyptic worldview. And you're going to lose, Sammy Sam. You're losing, baby. It's going to be over. You're about to tell your little funky settler project up. We will survive, as Kwame Trey said. You know, we got to ensure that our people will survive America. But your lust for this white supremacist onward Christian soldier, Christian fascist rule 
is going to cost you the framework. O'Connor understood that, regardless of her other political positions. You see it in affirmative action. She's the vote in Grittiger. She's the one who made up a number in her head and said, well, maybe we won't need it 25 years from now. And they took that as an article of faith until they could take that out. CT, are you with me, Clarence? Thomas, Uncle Clarence. You know, you, you couldn't wait to get at it, bruh. But your neck, you know, you, you, you better stop the neck you slit, maybe your own. The whole point is that you are going to cut the head off of any possibility of going forward with a viable American framework. Senator O'Connor was a federalist. Not federal society, federalist. She's a federalist in thinking she got to preserve the power of states, the autonomy of states in as many situations as possible if the federal government can't intervene. So in that, she shared with her classmate from Stanford, I mentioned Stanford earlier, uh, William Rehnquist, a purebred racist, very different in some ways from O'Connor. She shared that with him, this question of states' rights, but she made one slip up in states' rights. And that was actually the anniversary of that's coming up on the 12th of this month. That would be Bush versus Gore. The apocryphal reporting at the time that they were at a dinner party, I think she and her husband, and uh, it's never been attested to. She denies the conversation never happened. But, you know, people said that, you know, they heard her husband say, you know, oh, my God, Gore is every time they recount Gore is gaining. We don't want Gore to win because uh, Sandra wants to retire and wants the Republican to appoint her a replacement. And uh, if Gore wins, that won't happen. And so Bush versus Gore, which is a mess of a case, you can't really cite it for anything, even though this white nationalist court has begun citing Bush versus Gore, which is fascinating, a case where they used the 14th Amendment to say that since there's no objective standard of counting these votes in Florida, the counting must stop. They intervene on a state issue. These federal elections, how they run is the question of the state. So she was a federalist until she wasn't. And near the end of her life, she quipped that, you know, maybe I should have rethought, maybe I shouldn't have, maybe we shouldn't have gotten involved in Bush versus Gore. Maybe we should have stepped away and said bye-bye. You think, saying, you think, yeah, you think, if you follow your own judicial uh, trajectory. Finally, in terms of cases, there's another place we could talk about. We talk about religion. She voted in the McCreary case and with McCreary versus American Civil Liberties Union that you can't put the Ten Commandments in the courthouse. Why? Because it's separation of church and state in this country. So she would probably be considered a liberal today, ironically, people who have no memory. But the last one I want to talk about very quickly is the voting rights stuff. It's San O'Connor who almost sets us on the trajectory toward where we are now with the idea that political gerrymandering is okay, racial gerrymandering isn't. Remember the uh, the North Carolina cases, the Shaw versus Reno line of cases, and the uh, the Ashcroft versus Georgia cases, where you know in, in Shaw versus Reno, what you see is that these white boys in the North Carolina legislature creating these gerrymandered districts where you try to stitch all the black people together to give them a district and get them out of these other districts. It's San O'Connor who brings the point up and says, you know, do we assume that I'm, I'm paraphrasing here? Do we assume that all the black people think alike? Would it be better to have all the black people in one district or a third of the black people in three districts so they can influence the elections. It's still a debate that we have to have. It's still a debate that we're having. I think about Gary Chambers, for example, in, in Louisiana. But it is she who says racial gerrymandering is unacceptable. She kind of does this too in uh, affirmative action and hiring as it relates to federal contracts. Story for another day, the Adiran case. But in the case of voting rights, she says, no, you can't do it around race. Well, that's going to open the door to, well, we're not going to say race. We're going to say politics. And, of course, you saw what happened with the redistricting in the state of Georgia last week, where they were ordered by the courts to create more black 
majority black districts. So they create two majority black districts. They're proposing to create two majority black districts. And then they turn around and gerrymander two Democratic districts where white people are to make them majority Republican. So you can't say that they didn't add black districts, but it was a zero sum game because they took out two Democratic districts because they figured out that the court's going to allow them to do stuff that they can claim is political. And of course, we see Sandra Day O'Connor opening the door with that. The other thing I would say is, you know, she served about half of her term with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who came on about 12 years after O'Connor was uh, on the court. But I'll end with this as it relates to Sandra Day O'Connor. Sandra Day O'Connor served for about a decade with Thurgood Marshall. And she wrote about, you can read, she wrote several, well, Lazy B was her major memoir with her brother. She grew up on a ranch in the West, Arizona. Um, but there are a number of books been written about her and then there's a couple of collections of her speeches. She talks about having a different attitude toward race and the possibilities of race in the federal framework and the constitutional jurisprudence before she came to the Supreme Court. She said, I spent 10 years on the bench with Thurgood Marshall and sitting in judicial conferences, debating how we were going to decide cases, spending time together with the other justices, and listening to Thurgood Marshall changed my views on race. And after he made transition and she was still on the bench, he sa she said, you know, there are times when I sit and I wish I could listen to him one more time. I hear his voice and I know it would help me as I'm making decisions. It's very powerful to think about this. And that is the possibility because again, Marshall, and I wouldn't agree on with Marshall on a lot of things from the nation of Islam to communism, but ultimately, the acts of refusal that our people engaged in and what happened when we refused, when we refused to not be, uh, to, to be enslaved. We fought our way out of the civil war. When we refused to submit to segregation, Jim and Jane Crow, when we refused to not pursue our dreams by building our collective strength in the civil rights and black power movement and its aftermath, the responses to those things can only be positive. Even if they look negative in the short term, military repression, the prison industrial complex, there's a new book Orsami Burton's written called Tip of the Spear, which I recommend highly. Brilliant book. You know, he's saying basically we all in prison. The prisoners are just the most obvious example of it. And when you zoom out, he's using Attica as the point of entry. But then you see the, 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 the analysis he's making. It's like, damn, we are all in prison in one way or the other. But the responses to it ultimately are positive. Our acts of refusal lead to the opening up of human possibilities. And ultimately, if there's hell below, we all going to go. And when we get there, I guess we'll see Henry Kissinger. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, well, I, I'm not going to see him. Uh, my no, because we, no, we ain't going where he is. No question. <laughs> mm -mm, no. no. Uh, th this was so um, beautiful. And there's almost like a thread that is being sewn with each class, with each Monday, with each, you know, yes. as, I, as I'm on the radio, I'm like, I'm carrying it with me. And yes. the drumbeat of resistance, uh, resistance to wrong, resistance to hate, resistance to all, like it is our responsibility to resist. It, it's our birthright. It you is know? our birthright. I mean, one of the first things children say is no. <laughs> you get a baby. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> things they learn to say is no. It's it's almost hardwired. Oh, you know, what we you not know. going to 
<laughs> it's so funny. I remember many years ago being in a meeting in Philadelphia with a bunch of uh, elementary school teachers, and they were talking about how these consultants come in and talk about giving children liberties in the classroom. And one of the sisters said, they ain't not, they ain't not talking about black children. He said, how are you going to hold a black child accountable when you go in the room and say, do you want to take a bath? And they say no. And then you punish them. You ask them a question. You can't go in there. Get your ass in the bathtub. If you ask a child a question and she answers honestly, you can't punish the child. Why do we all not talk to our children? Do you want to take a bath? No, I don't want to take a bath. Right. No is the problem. <laughs> it was hilarious. Yes. Yeah. We have we have to resist. I mean, we have we have to. We have to until things are right. And we have to remember, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's a lot of us have these hardwired opinions about things that we don't know because we haven't done the, the scholarship study. I was just talking with Otis, Otis Mars the third again. Um, yes. yes, that brother. And, and, you know, cause Daniel Black did something, blew up people's minds. And then I was like, all right, let me bring the, the biblical scholar in yes. and let's, you know, let's, because, you know, at each stage of discomfort that we have with the things we think we know, you know, there, there's work to be done within ourselves. And it's so easy to reject everything because it makes you feel a certain way or you don't believe it firmly, but you haven't really examined it. And this space has allowed me at least to, to think more deeply about the things I thought I knew, to change my mind about the things that I was wrong about, even though that's not an easy thing as well. But, you know, to seek out right, you know, at every turn. And you've done that for us. And I thank you. Well, we do it for each other. Yes, we and do. You know, you you lead, you lead this and thank you. Well, well, I'm I'm glad to be at the center with you and with all of us. I must also pass on um, another uh, another thanks from students. Last week in my Black Aesthetics class, uh, we evoked uh, your friend Orlando Jones and that scene with Mr. Nancy on the ship <laughs> and the act of refusal. So you already did, because we were talking about this. And so I wanted to pass it on to you because I know y'all had that conversation and the consequences of when you get a little too real. So I wanted you to know that these students hold you in high regard and thank you for that, because we actually played that clip and I talked about, you know, these conversations you had. <laughs> you actually reached out. I want, I want him to come back, you know. Um, and that's the other thing. These these folk in Hollywood, um, we, we learned some things. I had Courtney B. Vance on with Dr. Robin. They have a new book, um, The Invisible Eight, which is right there, um, about, you know, black men, pain, trauma, you know, because his, his dad uh, died by suicide and, you know, and it inspired him to, you know, really lean into this. And Dr. Robin together, they're, they're out on a tour talking about this. But, you know, during the strike, Courtney V. Vance had a foundation. He headed up the foundation to make sure that actors, you know, who we think are all rich and most of them are not. Most of us make more than the average actor. You know, everyone ain't George Clooney or making $10 million a film like Halle Berry. Most of the actors are just working people and that's their thing that they want to do with their lives. And they're, they don't really have health care. They, you know, and we've seen this with Mary Lou Retton, who was not an actress, but yes. when she fell ill, you know, these, these folk that um, are artists and athletes uh, after they leave their, their chosen field, sometimes they're not taken care of. So, you know, they had that fun. He said, we paid rent, tuition, you know, they were able to and thank you to The Rock and Oprah and other people who donated to it because that's how that's supposed to be. If you have a lot, then you should share it. You know, it's not taking anything away from Oprah or The Rock to donate a million to it. And that helped people pay their rent, mortgage and child care and everything. And um, just to to hold out against the power structure 
and to tell them, no, no, we're not coming back because you're trying to break us because you have the political and the, the financial might to do that. And this can show up in every area as we're seeing, you know, the, the Teamsters and the, 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 the UAW and we're seeing Amazon workers and everyone deciding that I am the labor. You, you do nothing. The, these studio heads don't act, sing, dance, write, do anything, but they get all of these bonuses. The, the head of Ford, doesn't know how to put together a car. I'm sure she doesn't, but she got a $22 million bonus to keep costs down. Yeah, no, this this is uh, this is a new day. And if we lean into it uh and don't yeah, let have. let folk get away with it, uh we can we can win. Uh the fight no, is for all of us. That's yeah. right. And 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 it's never gonna be over. It's not like I mean, in other words, if they didn't fight now, I mean we 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 all saw, you know, what happened with Mark Altman over at Open AI. We talked about that this week too. Uh, you know. You you have a computer now that can solve a math problem based on data you didn't input, what they call it open general intelligence. And Altman and them is like, let's make this money. And the scientists is like, oh, hold on, chief. This this is a problem. But the money won out. They not only brought him back, they switched out the board. And here go that funky Larry Summers again. I mean, yeah. but the point is that if the actors don't, if the if the writers, if the artists don't stand up now, it's a wrap. And guess what? When that contract expires expires in a couple of years they're gonna have to fight it again nan never ends we have to stand for right because ai could wipe out all the jobs so you're right i mean it's not actually it, it probably will and then the question yeah. becomes no and and so this is what i'm exploring moving into 2024 i'm just giving you a little insight it's going to happen this it's really because most of us are not plugged in enough to make it stop so then the the question is community because in a, in a situation like that, we're going to have to be looking at basic income, which a lot of people feel like it's, you know, welfare or charity. No, if your job is wiped out and there's, it's not ever coming back, not coming back, the government that you paid into should be supportive of every single citizen. There should be a universal basic income in that right. scenario, but also leaning into community. If we all have a plot of land, doesn't have to be a lot and you do tomatoes and I do yams and the next person and we exchange, nobody goes hungry because really it's about food, clothing and shelter, right? And if we all have that, you know, what, why do we need a, an abundance of money? You know, what is money in that scenario? It's us. We're the money. Right. So I, right. I just, you know, I think it's coming. So I want us to also, you know, which is why community is so important. There should be no one that goes to bed hungry or without a roof over their heads, not in our community. And it was never that way, even when we were poor, watching boycott, watching oh. those people show up with their car. People didn't have, I mean, you're talking about poor black people who had to take poor the bus. And, and somehow for a year, they were able to hold out. You think about poor black people. That's all I was sitting. Oh. I was like, these folks don't have money. And then they did an offering, another offering so they could have money. <laughs> For the people to buy shoes and stuff. I was like, these people don't even have money. But somehow poor black people supported a whole boycott for a year and broke the back of a bus company. Yes, they Come did. On. A bus company that relied on 90% black ridership at its peak. So they, when they cook out, and, and so I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, tomorrow, no, Monday morning on WPFW, I'm going to do an hour with Joni Eisenberg, who is a Nubian. Joni was there last night. Joni never misses. Shout out to her, to Mama Dory Ladner, who never misses, you know, get well soon, Mama Dory. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Thunder of Angels. Actually, we're going to talking about this, too, because, you know, they, uh, Katia Stitt, them, they want to play in class on WPFW. So 
the thunder of angels the montgomery bus boycott and the people who broke the back of jim crow this is donnie williams and wayne greenshaw's book the thunder of angels which you've heard me mention before uh donnie williams father-in-law is the white dude who is from montgomery who when the montgomery bus company said it was getting ready to destroy a bunch of old buses he deliberately went down there and said well you know I, I i repair stuff and i need i want to buy a couple of these buses for parts so i can but he was after the cleveland avenue bus he was after the one miss parks was on but he didn't tell him that so he went to the lot they showed him all the decommissioned buses he figured out which one was that when he bought it and it sat on his property for years ultimately his son-in-law donnie williams that they're the ones who uh sold it to the ford museum ironically where it is in michigan now but williams uh and a, rep a reporter named wayne greenshaw put this book together called the thunder of angels which is excellent it's the story of the montgomery bus boycott driven by interviews with all the people and because they were white no doubt that was a big part of it they interviewed klansmen they interviewed the white government officials in addition to all the black people ed nixon and uh two people we see in the film um uh uh oh it'll come to me ann Braden. Not Ann Braden. Uh, anyway, she and her husband, who was uh, her husband was a, a legal advisor, a kind of partner in some ways with Fred Gray. Um, it'll come to me a minute. Somebody will put it in the chat. But anyway, I only raise it for this reason. The book opens with the violence against black people on those buses prior to 1955. Black women, black men, black children. And one story talking about not riding the bus. Uh, these sisters, one sister told them a story of she was a domestic. She and her friends, they're on the bus after a day's work. A young brother gets on the front of the bus with his army uniform on, black dude. He puts his money in the, 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 the counter and then walks toward the back of the bus from the front. The white boy, the bus driver is like, uh, you can't do that. You got to get off and get on in the middle. He was like, there's nobody in the aisle. I'm going straight back. He's going to call the police. He said, call the police call the police they get in a tussle and a few feet from these sisters these crackers shoot this brother in the back and kill him dead this army veteran take his body away his wife his widow they had a couple of young children his widow put their children on a bus to chicago and sent them to relatives never to return and when she was putting them on the bus she said i'll never see my children again the sisters who saw the, the killing never rode the bus again. There were people who, who had their own individual acts of nah, traumatized. And these are domestics. So what they do, they got rides that they walk. You know, we can do whatever the hell we want to do when we decided. But they took that man's life. And that's unforgivable. But the point is that there were people who drew that line before, before uh, Claudette Coleman, before Rosa Parks. And these white boys was known for violence. And their children are known for violence. And we're going to tell y'all right now. Nah. 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 Thank nah. you. Thank you, Dr. Carr. Thank you. Yeah. Love you. I love, love you. you too. I love you immensely. Uh, we will see uh, you on Monday. See you yeah, on Monday. Monday. The Hampton idea, remember? We're going to be reading that on Monday. Oh, shout out to Mama Nia. Uh, Nia Damali. Don't go anywhere. I was, uh, 33 years this, the 5th of December in Atlanta. Well, I was just down there, went by her bookstore. Uh, she said, all these Nubians keep coming in here, Dr. Carr. <laughs> they keep these books, all the children's books. He can't, they flying off the shelf. So Mama Nia, love to you. And, and uh, Medu, which of course we know is speech in ancient Egyptian. Medu bookstore, the oldest black bookstore in Atlanta, 33 years strong. 
co-editor of the Book of Tao Tep, Chi, The Ancestors, um, Larry Obadelli Williams and Asa Hilliard, the oldest book in the world, as they call it. Nia Damali was the third person on that. Just a beautiful black woman, queen mother, culture keeper, always sending love to you, uh, uh, Prof, and everyone. She wants y'all to know that, you know, the Nubians just keep her going after all these years. So shout out to her. I wanted to mention that. Oh, and, and Aya Nelly had her book launch last night. She's going to do a virtual one. This 30-day thing. I know I'm not a black woman, but I'm learning a lot in this day by day that uh, Aya Pubara Nelly has done. The Nubian nation is just strong. <laughs> Let me tell you, you, you're like the Keith Lee of books. I feel no. like. <laughs> no, no, I just, no. It, just, it just came to me. You are like mm. the Keith Lee of books. You are getting people out there <laughs> buying books and reading, building the libraries in a way, well, making bookstores uh, sell, you know, sell out books and stuff. You, you've done you, that. We, 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 we all working together. That's what I'm saying. But think about how wild that is. You know, with him is the food of. But you've got people reading things like I'm like my my book library game is so 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 amazing now because I got books that probably take me a hundred years to finish. But yeah. uh, or or never or build a library. Or hand, build or a library yeah. Yes, we're gonna build um, a library. Well, Charles Bloxon, all the book collectors, Obadelli Williams, the ancestors. Now, it, just you saying that that that's a that's a praise to them because that's yeah. who you know. We, we should have the books because when they turn the lights out. Well, at least had the books. <laughs> so. And maybe one day we can get uh, insight into how 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 you've been impacted by some of these books. But I'm oh just, no, no, we're gonna do that. You that said out, that. I'm just putting that out there uh, in the universe so everybody you, can hear it. You now. said that. You said that. We look, y'all. The professor Hunter has plans, and they're gonna all be executed. And I'm going to stop being wayward. I ain't saying nah to any of them. I just got to cut some of this other stuff out, which I'm doing. I'm getting there. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. All right. All right. Love you. Love, love you. Love All right. You. Love you. See everyone uh, in the Nubian streets. Have a wonderful weekend. Everyone, love you.